Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, this is J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions. Today, my guest is Kevin Berry, who I first met when we worked together at Fidelity Investments starting back in 2006. Kevin is now the president of Workplace Investing at Fidelity, a role he has held for the past five years. If Fidelity administers your 401k, your 403b, your stock plan, your pension, or your medical benefits, all of that falls under Kevin's remit. He joined Fidelity 16 years ago and came up to the finance function before becoming head of stock plan services and then moving into his current role about six years ago. Prior to joining Fidelity, Kevin was in the finance function at Gillette, and prior to that, he was in the finance function at Frito-Lay. He started his career as an analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency. He's a trustee of the Boston Ballet and is a seven-generation board member for City Year. He earned his bachelor's degree in government from Harvard University and his MBA from Dartmouth's Tuck School. He and his wife, Patty, live in the Boston area and are the parents of four adult children. Kevin, welcome. Thank you for doing the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Jer. So you have a big job running the Workplace Investments Unit at Fidelity. Give the audience a sense of its scale in terms of how many companies that you support, how many individual plan participants you support, employees, assets, all of that. Right. Yeah, I'll give you a couple numbers because it's tough to kind of have one, just one encapsulate all of it. But, you know, we provide a range of um, benefit plan services that we uh, provide to companies and then we service their employees. Yeah, depending on how you count it, either in the range of 22 to 24,000 corporate entities and tax exempt institutions, about 37 million plan participants participate in those uh, programs. Assets that we administer depends on the market. It's been in the range of three to three point two trillion uh, recently, and a little bit over ten thousand employees that take care of those customers every day across the whole range of benefits that we service. Those should make up some big numbers. I think for the first time in many many years, don't have a Fidelity administered four hundred one k because I'm working over here and I'm under a UK pensions scheme at the moment. So it's a whole other world to figure out relative to the, the way things work in the U.S. You were in the consumer products industry before you, you, you came over to Fidelity. So what was it that, that led you to first join the company when you, when you joined back in 2006? Yeah, you know, it's, it was, I would tell you, it was not some big planned uh, career move or even deep passion for the industry. Yeah. Believe it or not, I was working for a company up here in Boston, Gillette, uh, which was sold to Procter & Gamble. We had decided we had we put down roots in Boston that we wanted to stay there and for me to make a career the best I could. And so P&G bought Gillette. It's a, you know, P&G is a terrific company, but all roads lead to Cincinnati. And yeah. so when Fidelity approached me during the merger, I had really good experiences with Fidelity as a customer and decided to take a sort of calculated leap of faith that I could figure out a way to add value in the world of pensions and 401ks, even though I knew very, very little about it. 
to let me uh, keep my family where they needed to be. And it was an exciting new adventure to jump into. Yeah. And you and I joined there right around the same time. And, and, you know, I was coming out of McKinsey at the time. So for me, it was a fairly big change as well. I really hadn't done much financial services work to that point. So here we are, you know, 16 years later, you're still at Fidelity. I'm still in financial services. So, you know, clearly the move worked out for, for both of us. You were a finance guy, right? You came up to the finance function. You became the CFO of the workplace unit before you took on that stock plan services role. How do you feel coming up to the finance function prepared you for that ultimate shift into general management? Yeah, I've thought about that. You know, I think it's always helpful to have some kind of uh, core skill set that is sort of a key piece of your responsibilities that you can always fall back on that you know intuitively and you know really well and that you have a high degree of confidence because you're going to get stretched in many, many other ways. You know, I think having a diverse finance career before moving to general management, it gave me just a a fundamental understanding of, you know, the financial management of an enterprise, cost management, revenue generation, assets and liabilities. I'm not an accountant or a CPA, but the fundamentals of accounting and balance sheet management. And it's also a, you know, if you have a broad enough career in finance, it gives you a sense of how the workings of the entire enterprise, at least through a financial lens. So it's not unique to any one function. You see how all the different parts of an enterprise work together, either to create value for customers or to support the enterprise from a you know, more of an infrastructure standpoint, how it operates in different economic conditions. So it gives you a, a, a very broad toolkit, but from a very specific lens. But it's something that, you know, I can, I fall back on a regular basis and I probably spend less time than some of my peers uh, going into the details of the financials just because I can, I have some muscle memory that I rely on um, pretty uh, frequently and that makes it great for me. Yeah, certainly in my experience, I've had a lot of people who've, I've worked with or who have worked for me who haven't really had that finance background and it's tough in some ways if you don't have a stint in finance to really develop that deep understanding that you need if you ultimately want to move up in an organization because it is so foundational and it just seems to be lacking for a lot of people. So it's it's a good way. I've always let that come up. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's important to know what you're looking at and what it means and what it doesn't mean. You can be misled sometimes by financial data if you yeah. don't know don't know the right questions to ask and uh, can lead you to bad decisions if you're not careful. Yes, very true. When you moved into that stock plan role, obviously you had sort of a broader range of functional accountability, more of a general management set of activities that you were, were performing. What did you find that you had to work hardest at learning coming out of the finance function? Yeah, that, you know, there's a couple of things that I sort of knew intellectually going in, but really took me a while to sort of internalize. One is, actually be customer facing, right? So coming from a you know career of being in, in support roles, I've been in a few meetings with customers, but to be in that sort of front of the house, representing the brand, representing the business role where you're ultimately making commitments and backstopping the services and uh, making promises on a regular basis, then being accountable to follow through on that. You know, it's a different skill set. I and mean, how do you communicate customers? How do you, you know, uh, communicate and inspire a large frontline workforce hmm. um, that can be you know, lots of hourly employees and you know, doing roles that you would never see in a finance function. And I think the other uh, part of it is just is the direct accountability for better or worse. I mean, you eat your own cooking every day and you right. use 
the decisions you make come back to, you know, either reward you or bite you, depending on how it turns out. And there's no hiding from it. Whereas in finance, you give the best advice you can and try to uh, help enable great decisions, but rarely is that decision squarely on your lap where you have to live with the results. So that it, it's, it's something to adjust to. Yeah. One of my former guests, Jim Whitehurst, who I went to business school with, he was president and of IBM. And before that, he was CEO of Red Hat. And before that, he was COO at Delta Airlines. And he talked a lot about how just even that, that shift from being the COO of a massive organization into being CEO, you know, that it really is like there's nobody behind you. Right. And, and, you know, you really do have to own it. And he said, even, even when he moved to IBM, which is obviously a much more massive company, being the president, you know, he said he had that safety net, you know, of, of a CEO behind him. And, and it's, it's definitely a consideration when you move into those sort of top jobs. Well, it reminds me of what somebody, when I was, we were just starting a family, when my coworkers told me about it, having kids, you have your highest highs and your lowest lows when you become a parent. And that's kind of in a, in a business career that being a general manager is like that too, because it's, it all comes back to your doorstep one way or the other. True. When you stepped out of that stock plan job into the bigger job running workplace investments, what were the big things that felt different in that transition? Probably a couple things. One is, well, anytime you move up in the organization, you're managing higher level teams. And so when you are uh, become a senior vice president, you're managing vice presidents, become executive vice president, you're managing senior vice presidents, become a president, you're managing EVPs. And so you need to step up your game in terms of how you're adding value because those are really smart, really capable people. So there's an element of that. How do you scale yourself and add value at a different level? My current job is a much, just much, much bigger in terms of uh, scale. And so what it really pushes you to do is how do you, how do you scale your impact through systems and the people mm-hmm. you use? Because just what you can get done in a work week is just more limited in terms of what percentage of the organization can you touch or directly be involved. Right. So it becomes much more, you know, a process of thinking about, do you have the right management systems in place? Are you looking at the right data? You know, do you have the right bench strength on your team? Because there's, it becomes, you know, a smaller percentage of what goes on is something you can impact very directly. You're working through others right. or technology or process. And so you just need to be a whole lot more thoughtful about that. And I think related to that is there's a little bit of a process of you, you'll never understand everything or you'll never right. know everything. So how do you, you know, sleep at night and create confidence that things are running well? If they're not, you'll hear about it through all those things I just talked about. Yeah. You know, when you go from being an individual contributor to a manager, it's in many cases, it's easy to do the player coach thing, right? Sure. You know, and to still be in in the details and to know everything that's going on in the team. When you move up a level, it gets a little bit harder. When you move up a level further, it gets even harder. And, you know, you, you get to the point where you're running a big enough organization, you realize, you know, you can't know everything, right? So you have to rely on the management systems, to your point, and the people that you've put in those roles and trust them to, you know, to do their job. How do you, how do you, what's your approach for setting direction and, and kind of keeping tabs on things as best you can? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's some degree situational, depending on the maturity of the team. I, and I mean, I mean, maturity in terms of tenure and you know, stability of the team, how you operate with a new team is very different than with a highly experienced team. 
or when I, if I'm new in a role or picking up new responsibilities, I've got a new group that I'm working with now. You know, I think with new coworkers, new teammates, or a new uh, business you're learning, it's much more about fun- fundamentals and just understanding what's going on every day. You know, how to manage the short term and make sure you know everything's being handled that you understand the fundamentals of what has to get done and you're assessing the capability of the people you're working with. I think when you get to uh, higher performing teams, more mature processes, um, management processes and things like that, that obviously frees you up to think a lot more strategically, think longer term. Um, You know, I think one of the key things that I try to do is just spend a lot of time listening um, so I, I travel a lot. I talk to a lot of people uh, because I think a big part of my success is in collecting as much data as I can and synthesizing and integrating it, especially from customers or people who are talking to customers and also people deeper in the organization where their voice might be getting filtered or for whatever reason might not be getting to me. And there's weak signals there that I should be paying attention to. So I always try to make sure I always try to hold myself accountable to the amount of listening I'm doing in whatever form that is, either externally or internally. But what questions I'm looking, you know, listening for, um, or you know, data I'm looking, listening for can vary based on some of those factors I've talked about. Do you have a structured approach for diving into the organization, getting, you know, down two, three, four levels, you know, so that you you get that more of that sort of frontline perspective, or is it more more happenstance? those kind of interactions? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I had a very structured process uh, prior to the pandemic going out. We've got a number of locations across the U.S., but I was going out to every location at least twice a year, more if I, um, more if possible, as well as to our overseas locations, doing lots of roundtables. I go to all of our client advisory board meetings, our, you know, our trade events, and skip levels, you know, with people deeper in the organization. A lot of that was disrupted by the pandemic. I was starting to build some new routines, but still not as effective. I'm trying to get back to where I was, you know, and so there's spending, investing the time in it, which I think is really, really important. I think partly it's also part, you know, it can't just be one way through where I'm just collecting information. I need to be delivering clarity to the organization of where we're going and what we're trying to accomplish, what's working, what isn't. And so thinking a lot about content and how do you message to these different audiences, I think Mm. is really, really important. You know, I try to have a strategy that a strategy I communicate on one page. That's not a bunch of pillars or, you know, trapezoids and PowerPoint, but something that actually communicates in as few words as possible, the essence of what we're trying to do. And that I think both for customers and our associates, give them a sense of not just the what, but the how and the why. Right. Uh, which And that takes a lot of work. So I do spend a lot of time. I work my communications team really hard, my strategy team every year on what that content is to communicate across all those different audiences. Yeah. You know that the why really matters. And I will tell you, I don't know if you remember this. It was probably 2007 or 2008. Abby, you know, was running former workplace business at that point, what it was called Fesco at the time. And, and, talked about the mission of Fesco being to help people be productive at work and prosperous in life. Mm-hmm. And do you remember that? It was, it was such a, an elegant and simple definition of like, why does this organization exist? Right. And it captured the, you know, the role that the company fidelity played in helping people with all their workplace benefits, but also just how that translated to their personal lives. And 
I, I think about that a lot, you know, having worked in different financial services firms, that why, right, drawing it back to that why, like, you know, we invest money, but we invest money that people have worked very hard to earn. And, you know, they need us to do a good job for them. And right. you can't forget that. No, I, you know, and a lot of our business is based on loyalty of our customers and associates. And I think the more you talk about the why, and if they have confidence in the what and the how, it becomes far less transactional. Yeah. And, you know, people, I, I know our own associates, they just don't want to, they're just not here to collect a paycheck. They want to be part of something important that they feel good about right. doing, you know, and not just for the benefit of fidelity. And so I think that's, that's kind of a key part of leadership that sometimes gets undervalued. Yeah, I agree. You, you talked about time a minute or so ago. Do you have kind of this mental model for how you try to spend your time across seeing customers, spending time with your direct reports, seeing team more broadly, you know, working on direction setting and all of that? Boy, I certainly aspire to, you know, actually my... Um, Me too. I aspire to it too. <laughs> and anybody who's really, really good at that, I sort of question their adaptability because things, uh, you know, it always seems to break down under pressure. My assistant, I actually have her color code everything on my calendar so I can go back. Yeah. And, you know, in a perfect world, I'd probably be spending, you know, a third of my time out, you know, listening to customers and helping grow the business, but a third of my time on products and services and a third of the time, you know, just running, you know, the business and administrative. It never quite plays out that way. Yeah. And it's, it's also seasonal. It, it varies a lot. If it gets too far out of whack for too long a period of time, I'm probably not balancing things right. And that balance is, keeping that balance over the long term is pretty critical. Yeah. How do you, when things do start to get out of whack, because I'm sure you get pulled in a lot of different directions, as any leader of a big organization does, how, how do you try and pull it back to you know, more how you want to be spending your time and more where you see as the priorities for the organization? Well, you know, one of the things I try to be very disciplined about is at least two to three times a year, I have a conversation with my leadership team. I've got 12 direct reports and some other folks on a dotted line basis and just have an explicit conversation about how and what we're spending our time on. I, you know, management process is something that should always be visited. Are you looking at the right data and listening to the right people? And out of those conversations usually comes out where things aren't getting the attention that they need. Just having the discipline to have an explicit discussion about that a couple times a year, yeah, uh, I think is important. I think related to that is, I mean, Jerry, you remember the management team you and I were on, right? You know, the leader would always make sure there's lots of unscheduled time for conversation, just right. open. And some of the best stuff comes to life there. So I'm always... I get in a situation where my team does not have unscheduled time just to share and process and raise and debate and escalate, then we're right. pro probably on the wrong track. Yeah. Or walk the floor and just yeah. have those informal conversations totally. with people across the organization. Cool. What do you do to recharge your battery? What do you do to, to keep work in balance, you know, with all of those things going on every day? Yeah, that's another thing. I don't have a perfect recipe for, you know, I try to have, you know, at least a couple of things that I, you know, projects or things that, might, that have nothing to do with work. You know, I've been I'm working my way through a Latin cuisine cookbook uh, recently. Oh, yeah. I've been trying different, a couple of different genres of literature that I haven't gotten into before, trying for probably the, you know, 30 years and counting to develop a golf game. So 
you know, I, but that also requires some mental discipline too, is, you know, be, if you're going to be with your family, be present with your family, yeah. right? If you're going to be cooking, stop worrying about the management review next week and focus on chopping the onions, right? You know, so yeah, boundary. And I think the pandemic made this tougher for everybody, but boundaries, boundaries are really important. And I think if you keep, keep some boundaries up with your personal life, you're more likely to recharge when you need to. Boundaries are definitely, they have definitely been hard during the pandemic era for a lot of people. And, you know, what's interesting at the same time, there's just, you know, there's also a hesitance to come back to the office in a lot of companies. And it's kind of a paradox if you think about it. It's like, yeah. I'm working harder, but I'm, I'm happier with my work-life balance, which I guess, you know, says something about, you know, how soul-crushing mutes are for, for a number of people. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. One of the things I wanted to spend some time on with you is just fidelity, right? And and just the vantage point that fidelity has on what people are doing to save for retirement or kids' education or whatever. What do you see in, among the 37 million participants that you're responsible for? Uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on. It's really interesting. You know, there's good news and I'd say some challenges. One of the good news um, trends that I see is we obviously watch what our customers do during times of market volatility and swings in equity markets. And, you know, uh, because there's always a chance for people to make bad decisions, right? Yeah. React to the market to change their asset allocation to, you know, react to short-term factors. And we've seen less and less of that over time. We saw that through the uh, volatility at the beginning of the pandemic. We've seen it uh, most recently in the last couple of quarters, you know, people not um, not reducing their uh, contributions to their 401k plans, not making uh, significant changes in their asset allocation, not actually taking out, you know, significantly higher numbers of loans or hardship withdrawals. So I right. think we're seeing over time established savers, you know, really adopting more and more long-term, more and more of a long-term view, um, which I think is really encouraging. The other things that we're seeing though, Jair, is a definitely the impact of demographic change in a couple of different ways. We have a whole wave of uh, young workers coming into the economy, very different concerns than the baby boomers that a lot of the industry focuses on. You know, millennials and Gen Z, they're worried about student debt. They may plan to stay with their employer all that long, or they may want to take a sabbatical for a couple of years to go travel or work for a nonprofit. Connecting with them and being relevant for them can be a very different thing, but they're often employed by the same company that has lots of 50 pre-retirees. Right. So you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach uh, the way you used to, but um, the financial services industry always tends to follow where the money is now. And right now, the money is with the, the baby boomers. Right. Um, or, you know, early Gen Xers like myself, people who are, you know, who have uh, been accumulating and getting ready to move into retirement. It's these millions of younger workers entering the workforce, very, very different interests and concerns and attitudes towards money, consume information very differently. They're more likely to go to social media than to listen to CNBC or read the Wall Street Journal, right? And get ideas on Reddit or TikTok on how to invest. Those are customers today, and they're going to be the core of our business in the future. Right. So that's a really big um, focus for us. Also, the American workforce just continues to get more diverse across, across all different ranges of diversity, you know, gender orientation, ethnicity, you know, a whole di- bunch of different factors. And again, the um, financial services industry 
um, tends to uh, focus on what was considered a good customer in the past, which is not very diverse. And so how do you um, create greater confidence and more relevant offerings for women or people of color or LGBTQ plus customers, all who are trying to build great financial lives and, you know, um, for themselves and their uh, families, but do it in a way where they feel heard and validated and their needs understood and um, where they have confidence in dealing with the right company. So um, that's a really big uh, focus for us as well. I mean, I, I tell my folks, we're hired by HR departments and we are considered an extension of them and uh, and their values. Yeah. And if we're not as inclusive or more inclusive than the most inclusive customers we have, we're not going to be around 10 years from now or, or our competitors won't either. So it's it's an incredibly urgent issue, I would say, in the industry that we're really, really focused on. So yeah. that demographic is a big deal. How do you respond to that? What does is, what is Fidelity do to deal with the diversity and the employment population that that's now part of your 37 million participants? Well, it, it takes a couple of different forms. One is we need to be diverse and inclusive as an employer. Yeah. Uh, so when we connect with our customers, we need to look like our, you know, look like and show up and be understanding of our customer needs. And we're a little more likely to do that if we're a diverse and inclusive employer, which is a whole range of different work. Um, but then, you know, in terms of our products and services and our offerings, um, Frankly, it requires a lot requires a lot of learning and customer research. What are different communities um, or aspects of diversity? How do they impact people's financial needs or not? Um, you know, and how do you? And everybody's a collection of multiple identities, right? Uh, you know, or we have all different parts of their life. And so, um, what's what determines how they think and what they value and what's important to them? Yeah, every everybody's unique. And so it, it kind of takes you down this path of this buzzword that's been thrown around the industry forever, which is personalization. Mm-hmm. But how do you personalize based on what somebody's values and their and who they are and what they want, but also do it in a way that's not creepy, right? Um, where you know what they want you to know about them. So we're spending a lot of time on research, honestly, which leads us to, you know, there's obvious things like, you know, multilingual websites or accessible channels for people with visual or hearing differences, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff like that, where the, the limitations are, are, you know, more apparent. But what does your advertising look like? What kind of language do you use? Are you speaking to an individual or to the whole family? Uh, those are all questions that we're wrestling with and and how to take one approach versus another. And in terms of what makes the customer most confident, those are really, really tricky issues that the, the, the worst thing you do is take a one-size-fits-all approach to any of this, that all women want X or right. all brown customers want Y and, you know, you tailor it. Yeah, as you say, I mean, it's hard to strike that balance between trying to adapt without it coming across as condescending or creepy or whatever word you want to yeah. use. Yeah, or we're getting data that they don't want us to have or, you know, we're actually one of the big areas we're thinking a lot about is just privacy and data management in this whole space. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. you know you've you've got arguably one of the biggest troves of personal data out there. That's right, and you can access other forms of data externally, but right, is our clients want us to do, employees want us to know that. So it's a it's a fascinating space. Yeah, yeah, it really is. How has COVID and 
the whole workforce dislocation and now inflation, how is that affecting what you see in terms of people's saving behavior? You know, it, we were really, we've been tracking this very closely, as you'd expect. Um, there was a bit of a shockwave at the beginning of the pandemic, right? When there was that spike in unemployment, the CARES Act was passed and people could take right. $100,000 out on a penalty-free basis. But then, you know, employment bounced back pretty quickly. So I'd say that, and lots of stimulus dollars got into the economy, which uh, stabilized savings. And actually, savings jumped quite a bit in the overall macro economy. Um, the biggest long-term impact we're seeing, honestly, is what's happened with the labor market. Mm. Uh, you know, the um, the competitiveness of the labor market and the war for talent and how that has just gone off the charts, especially in you know, areas like technology and some specialized uh, skill sets. And then, you know, and our clients, as well as us as an employer, you know, just a you know a real scramble to understand how do you differentiate yourself as an employer and what role do compensation and benefits play in that? I mean, everybody there's certainly wage inflation in fields like uh, technology and AI and data engineering and all these fields. Absolutely. But what is is there a different range of benefits that are needed? You know, student debt management is a really fast growing field. You know, there's a whole range of voluntary benefits that uh, some companies are experimenting with. Some of which I think are really interesting, but we, we probably won't get into the pet insurance business, for example, but that's a really hot one right now. And there's no silver bullet out there. We talk, all our clients are talking to each other and to us saying, what, you know, what are you trying? What's working for you? Because just the constraint of lack of key talent is, and whatever role the pandemic played in that, whether it's made people you know, question their their choices in life and maybe, you know, tightened up the labor market, let, let some people to exit the labor market, accelerate the need for technology, you know, products and services. I'm not exactly sure what the exact cause and effect is, but I know there's something there that, what the, that the pandemic triggered in terms of how the labor market looks versus three years ago. So it's not that I, there's I, savings behaviors are as healthy as they were in general. But employers want more in terms of attracting talent than just a you know decent four hundred one k plan. What advice would you give people who are thinking about all of this? You know how to save for retirement, save for education, buy a house, pay down student debt, credit card debt, whatever. You know, I know we're not going to stray into the formal definition of advice and guidance on this call, but just sort of general fidelity wisdom that you can dispense. Well, I think, you know, any financial planner would tell you, first of all, take advantage of any free money, if you will, that's available right. for an employer map, a contribution to a health savings account. I think employee stock purchase plans with a big discount feature is another great way to take advantage of things like that. And I just, I think um, approaches that, you know, that work within a customer's life where they can fit it, you know, Maxing out your savings may not fit with your day-to-day financial needs either. You have to have a balance. You have to be able to live your life in a sustainable way as well as save for the long term. And I think just consistency of uh, saving in whatever form it takes and not making radical changes, not panicking, and seeking out good financial advice from uh, whoever provides it to you, I think are all really good ideas. Yeah, all good ideas. Let's go back to the beginning of your career. So you went to Harvard undergrad, you majored in government. How did you decide to major in government? And what did you see yourself doing at that point, you know, when you were, you know, looking ahead to graduation from your undergrad? 
program? Yeah, I, you know, and as I recall the process, you know, I would took my 18, 19 year old self, I don't think I was thinking this analytically about it, but I've got a high degree of intellectual curiosity. I'm curious on how things work and why things happen but not necessarily in a technology or engineering or sciences sense. And I've always been a little bit of a political junkie, even when I was a kid. So government, which is just Harvard's way of describing political science, is a, you know, it's a, it's a field of sociology that gives you frameworks for, you know, thinking about how the world, you know, operates. I've also found that it has given me some I some ways to think about just big organizations, whether they're governments or large corporations, you know, my own corporation or competitors. And how do you think about what, why things are happening the way they are, what's intentional, what's not intentional, what's yeah. driven by individuals versus leaders versus just baked in processes or biases. So, so it was just what I uh, gravitated to based on I, what I uh, enjoyed uh, learning about. I really wasn't giving any thought to what I was going to do after college at that point. Yeah. What did you end up doing when you left college? I know you eventually went back and got your MBA, but in the in-between period, what were you doing? Yeah, well, I actually ended up uh, joining the Central Intelligence Agency. I was an intelligence analyst in Langley, Virginia for five years. Again, not a particularly strategic thought process, but the one thing I knew coming out of college was I really enjoyed government. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to go to graduate school. I didn't want to join the Foreign Service and the State Department because so I had a serious girlfriend, not my wife of 33 years. Um, and so I thought, who, who, who would pay a BA, somebody with a BA to do political yeah. science? And so I just, I put out an application and that's where I worked. And I absolutely loved it. Yeah. That was at a time, you know, I remember them coming to campus you know, at, at Duke where I went to school undergrad and, you know, they recruited very heavily at the time, but they also were kind of living down the sins of the past. I think particularly around like the, you know, what had gone on in the Nicaragua and the Iran Contra, you know, situation and all of that. So, uh, but certainly for somebody who is a political junkie, it, yeah. you know, it was uh, undoubtedly a good place to go. And, uh, you know, I, there were a decent number of people at McKinsey when I ended up at McKinsey who had been, who had been analysts at the CIA. So it's, it, it kind of became its own sort of proving ground for, for people. Well, it's a, it, they teach you, regardless of what specific area you worked on, I worked on an area that I'd never studied and had to learn, but they, they do teach you tools and frameworks and really importantly, as intelligence analysts, how to communicate, yeah. how, to, how to be concise, how do you get to the point really, really quickly. There's very tight you know, length um, requirements on the different right. formats and um, how do you give oral briefings to really busy policymakers. So yeah. there's some pretty transferable skills to the business world in that sense. Absolutely. How did you decide that you were going to go back and get that MBA? Well, I always knew that I didn't want to probably spend my entire career at the CIA. And the, the longer you stay, the harder it is to make the jump. Right. Uh, you know, you just get more specialized and your networks change over time. And, and so... Uh, They're very narrow. I think that's one of the challenges of, you know, the government sector is that you, you have a very narrow lens on things. No, that's right. And, you know, I think my, uh, at, at that time, remember there's a health issue in my, our family. So we were very focused on getting back up to the Northeast uh, with our extended family. So we, people we wanted to get back close to for a period of time. So that was a geographic uh, focus. And then, you know, my, my dad was a career business executive and I'd grown up hearing about what he talked about and what he was interested in. And it was just felt like something I could relate to. 
you know, and we had started a family very young as we had two little kids when I was applying to business school. And so I wanted to be able to provide for them over time. No offense to lawyers, it just sounded like more fun than law school. So that's <laughs> how so I ended up in business school. How did you end up leaving there and heading into the finance world? You were at what, Frito-Lay first, right? Yeah, the parent Pepsi. company. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, you know, kind of an interesting story. I studied to be a brand manager, be a brand manager, did my summer internship at Ford Motor Company in brand management. And all the companies I interviewed with were in brand management, except for PepsiCo. They were offering me this or talking to me about a job in strategy and planning, which they said, don't worry, if you do this job, you can get into marketing. And they were the coolest, smartest, most interesting people I talked to. Products are very easy to relate to. And so uh, I went to PepsiCo. I sort of found out to my surprise about, you know, four weeks in, there was actually a really hard, hardcore corporate financial planning job that I was not equipped or trained to do. And I think was at risk of failing at pretty badly. And so actually, and I'd signed a lease and already, and yeah, I had a third kid on the way. And so I had to make this thing work. So I actually became self-taught in finance. I pulled out all the books I'd ignored in business school and did a crash self-taught course in corporate finance with uh, a lot of help and advice from some friends and coworkers, my, my bosses. And actually found out that I liked it, yeah. but it wasn't, but it was uh, probably poor planning on my part, a little bit of serendipity that I stumbled into something that I could figure out that I actually ended up really enjoying. Yeah. I, I mean, most everybody I talked to would say that there's a certain amount of opportunism and serendipity and everything. You were in the finance role in, at Pepsi, Frito-Lay, you were at Gillette, yeah. yeah. Fidelity. Is the way finance works in those three places, you know, what's similar and what's different? Yeah, you know, well, the work of finance tends to reflect the business model in a lot of ways. So like PepsiCo is at the corporate center is really sort of a diversified conglomerate. So I spent a lot of time with things like capital allocation and, um, you know, investment analysis, things like that. Frito-Lay is in a um, very short cycle direct store delivery business with products that are perishable. Chips go you've got a code, right? So very, when I was there, very, very short-term focus. I spent enormous amounts of time on logistics, weekly sales forecasts. How do you move things in a really rapid period of time from really the, the corn and potato fields into out of store shelves? How do you right. prevent product from going stale? So the work of finance is really around that manufacturing and logistics process. Gillette was a much, you know, it's consumer products, but it's helping beauty aids, really technology and manufacturing intensive oral B razors and, you know, right. um, fusion, vibrating five blade razors, things like that. Very, very global business. And so I spent a lot of my time there thinking about, it was still logistics, but, you know, global logistical supply chains. How do you uh, manage across, you know, 80 different markets? Um, things like foreign exchange exposure, things like that, right? Um, and then, you know, coming to a place like uh, Fidelity, you know, we've got you know tens of millions of customers where we service their needs every day. That, but that servicing often happens in massive um, IT infrastructure platforms. And then, but then with people on the front end trying to provide service. So, I had this sort of thread through my career of managing customer service and logistics. But in the case of Fidelity. It's really about phone capacity and platform capacity. Still worried about service levels and forecasting and, 
you know, that word about with, uh, potato chips back in the mid nineties, but it just takes a very different form in terms of what you're delivering and how it's delivered and the timeframes that you're dealing with. The one other thing I would mention is it's very different. And you probably, probably would agree with this chair working at a private company versus a public company. Yeah. That's hard to overstate what a difference that is. Well, not only in your case, not only a private company, but a family owned company, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very different proposition than a lot of other private. When I went from Fidelity to State Street, it was like night and day different. Yeah. And, you know, how decisions get made and how capital is allocated in the time frame. Like I said, Frito-Lay, if we didn't, if we really missed the weekly sales forecast, that was a really big problem. We make time, we make decisions here at a much longer time frame. Still need to be really, really disciplined about and be very data-driven and analytical, but less driven by the certainly the week of the month of the quarter tend to look at much uh, longer time frames, which is really a pleasure <laughs> compared to a more short-term focus. I know we're going to run out of time soon. You mentioned you were trying out some new genres. So what are you what are you reading these days? A couple of different things. I'm actually uh, trying some much older stuff. So. As you know, I spent some time at Cape Cod in the summer, and so right. um, I dug out a copy of uh, Henry David Thoreau's Cape Cod, which sort of mm-hmm. traveled uh, about Cape Cod, but back in the 1850s. I have an architecture book about uh, Soviet subway stations, okay. PCP Underground. It's about sort of the, the public art, you know, how uh, civic values get represented through architecture, but in this case, through subway stations. I don't don't know why I like it, but I do. And then one of my, you know, trying to uh, learn about, you know, diverse communities and areas, you know, parts of society that part of my own history. And so I've been reading a lot of Colson Whitehead. He's a phenomenal author, writes great novels, but a lot of it's about the Black experience in America. And the one that I've, I've just cracked is called Harlem Shuffle. Mm-hmm. It's about gangsters in Harlem, I believe, in the early 1960s. So I've got probably three or four others that are stacked up in the rotation waiting to be <laughs> waiting to be opened. So, yeah, don't we all, right? Exactly, exactly. Any final career advice that you would offer to people, you know, reflecting on sort of how things have gone for you and what you've learned? over the years? Well, it's, well, I'm, I'm closer to the end of my career than the beginning. I would say, you know, just from my vantage point that it's people, people's careers cause them a tremendous amount of anxiety. They worry, do they have the perfect plan? And um, are they doing all the right things? And I've just found there's a lot, I think knowing yourself is really, really important and what you want, at least as best, you know, one point, uh, a point in time, knowing what's important to you is really, really important. And just accepting that some parts of your career that you're not going to be able to control, but just making the best decisions you can at any one point in time. And, you know, there's definitely uh, curveballs in a negative way, but also there could be some of the best surprises. I never expected to be where I am right now. I'm having the time of my life doing it and I'm very lucky to do it, but I never would have predicted it, you know, back in the late 80s coming out of college, this is where I'd be, which is enjoying the ride, I think. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, Certainly, people have multiple careers over the course of their career, really, yeah. more, much more so than they used to. And, and so, you know, the beauty of that is, you know, you don't have to feel like you're locked into something forever. And that's right. the outcome of it is, in both our cases, you end up someplace that's very different from where you started and someplace that you probably didn't anticipate being in yeah, you know, that's back right. at the beginning. So, well, great. Exactly. Kevin, I appreciate the time. It's been really good to catch up. I will yeah. hopefully see you back in the U.S. at some point. 
when I get back to Boston. And sounds, uh, sounds great, Jared. Your day. All right. Yeah. Conversation. Bye bye. Yep. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks again to Kevin for joining me today and sharing his career story and learnings. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. Uh, you can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.